Hi everyone. Welcome to this installment of Macquarie University's Indigenous Australian Fiction podcast series. My name is Annie. I'm an English student at Macquarie. And for the next half hour, you and I will explore Claire G. Coleman's novel, The Old Lie, a fascinating and powerful work of Indigenous speculative fiction. But before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I am recording today, the Bidjigal and Daramaragal clans of the Darug Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands you are listening in from today, and extend my respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening in as well. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be. Aboriginal land. Now, our focus today is The Old Lie, a speculative fiction novel written in 2019 by best-selling and prize-winning author Claire G. Coleman. Coleman is best known for her 2017 novel, Terra Nullius, which has won two literary awards since it came out and has been shortlisted, longlisted, and highly commended for numerous others. So Coleman writes great fiction. She also writes essays and poetry and art criticism and writes from her personal experiences as a Noongar woman living on stolen land away from her ancestral country. In The Old Lie, Though, Coleman writes a sci-fi story. The story's setting is Earth's future, a time and place populated by aliens, spaceships, and novel technologies that is completely overwhelmed by an intergalactic war between two alien forces. One force is trying to invade Earth from space, and the other is taking over Earth on the ground, successfully. So The Old Lie isn't always an easy read then because the characters, the five indigenous characters who narrate Coleman's story, who are diverse and colourful and emotional like Coleman, are also angry. Their world is being invaded and their experiences are confronting and shocking and sometimes funny, but Always they are believable. So if I had to distill the old lie experience into a single sentence to send us on our way, it seems like a classic sci-fi narrative, but it reads like a well-timed wake-up call because despite its speculative setting, what happens in it The invasion, the war, the death, the survival is all very real. In fact, in Coleman's words, the old lie is a work of fiction influenced deeply by historical events. It takes the images and the genre tropes of a settler colonial sci-fi imagination and uses them to tell real stories of Indigenous survival. It describes refugee crises, stolen generations, war, dislocation, and nuclear weapons testing, taken from Australia's past and present, and envisioned in a conflict-ridden, space-faring future. 
Specifically though, Coleman drew on her family's and community's history when writing The Old Lie. She drew on her grandfather's experience as a World War II digger, who was buried in an unmarked grave and denied the settlement scheme land granted to white soldiers upon his return from war. But Coleman also tells real stories of Noongar veterans' children who were taken from their families and their ancestral country by the Australian wartime government under pretense of neglect. And Coleman tells stories of Aboriginal war veterans branded provisional Australians pre-referendum in 1967, who were denied re-entry into Australia after their offshore service to the Commonwealth because they weren't full members of Australia's population. But Coleman has also described the old lie as a brainwashing weapon disguised as a novel. And though that description was admittedly meant in good humour, the fact is, Coleman's novel does challenge us to think differently about colonization. Coleman wrote her novel, she says, to change people's perspectives about the colonial event in Australia, to disrupt a thought pattern that still exists that says colonization was peaceful, nonviolent, and for the good of all. But as Coleman points out, colonization was an aggressive invasion. It was extremely violent, and its ongoing harm has been felt by Aboriginal Australians for more than 230 years. I, I wanted people to understand that, Coleman said in an interview the same year her book came out. And so she wrote The Old Lie, a story where the land being aggressively and violently invaded is not just Australia but an entire future Earth under attack from the conglomeration, an enemy alien force that the people of Earth fight back against with the assistance of the Federation, a different alien force on the ground. However, as Earth only has a provisional alliance with the Federation during this war, and the Federation has plans for Earth anyway, the old lie actually becomes a story about two simultaneous wars. The battle with the conglomeration in space, and the battle with the Federation everywhere. With all this in mind, our journey through the old lie will take place in three parts, as we explore genre, focalization, and intertextuality at work in the novel. And Embedded within these three parts are Aboriginal voices, experiences, and knowledges of past, present, and future, of shared and unique identities, and of country. When we read The Old Lie, then, we, we encounter Coleman's and others' stories interwoven through her work, and develop empathy for these stories of strength, survival, and continuation. The sort of empathy that lies at the heart of respect and reconciliation. But first, to genre. To past, present, and future. And the old lies representation of continuous living culture across the time continuum. Now, as Paliku author Amberlyn Quaymalina who is another writer of Indigenous speculative fiction, points out, Indigenous narratives rarely fit neatly into Western genre divisions. 
But what the old lie does is make deliberate use of those Western genre divisions to disrupt the way these genres and their subgenres are understood in a Western popular imagination and put them to work in new ways. The genre division that Coleman specifically engages in the old lie is space opera, a sci-fi subgenre that's all about spaceship journeys through uncharted realms, adventures that bring humans into contact with mysterious alien forms, and that typically involve multi-species battles with inevitably violent conclusions. Think Star Trek or Star Wars, right? Space opera fiction, then, to borrow Coleman's words again, assumes that expansionism is always good and that seeking out, moving to, and terraforming new planets to help people is not only exciting, but justified. Which is why Coleman puts space opera genre tropes to work to tell her story about colonization and indigenous survival. Coleman's novel challenges this all too familiar and all too benevolent story of the great white savior in space and disrupts its conventional accounts of first contact and conflict. It does this by imagining future Aboriginal people engaged in ongoing resistance against conglomeration and federation colonists. When the conglomeration does actually arrive on Earth in the old lie, Coleman describes their levitating ships ignoring all communications, any overtures of peace and friendship. The conglomeration in Coleman's novel are invaders that have no intention to share the planet with humanity, but they want the Earth, and so they kill for it. To the conglomeration's forces, human lives are cheap, and in droves, the people of Earth start dying. On the surface, though, this is an alien invasion story that has been told and retold countless times since War of the Worlds, earlier, even. But here, in The Old Lie, Coleman's alien invasion doesn't just describe ships taking Earth by force from the outside. Earth, in Coleman's novel, in accepting help from different aliens, in forming an alliance with them, is invaded from within. So when the United Nations, in desperation, sends out a message in every frequency they can after the conglomeration's attack, the Federation answers. They try to blockade the Earth's solar system against the conglomeration. But as Coleman imagines, maybe more die from the Federation's defense of Earth than from the conglomeration's attack of it, and regardless, there's no way to count the casualties. But when the Federation extends Earth a provisional alliance, the answer is yes. Yes to the alien force who had miraculously saved the world, as Coleman puts it. Yes to the alien force that then recruits soldiers from Earth into their Federation armies, sending those armies off-world to attack the conglomeration while they change laws and turn away intergalactic refugees, and impose foster care systems, and draw real estate boundaries on the earth the soldiers leave behind, and are then forbidden to return to. As it builds this space-age science-fictional world, then, the old lie is building on Australia's colonial history 
It's stories of alien invasion and the dislocation of native peoples from their land and their families. But the old lie, as we'll find out pretty soon, also builds on clear markers of Australia's present, like the government's refugee policies, or its treatment of returned Aboriginal soldiers, or the brutality of police towards Aboriginal people, all of which tell of the damaging, ongoing legacy of colonisation. As such, Coleman embeds her novel in a time continuum of past, present, and future, all stages of which are encountered at once in her Aboriginal characters, to whom all time is one time. Coleman's characters embody thousands of years of Aboriginal ancestry. They live lives in real time with Coleman's readers, and they represent the continuation and evolution of Aboriginal identity culture, and knowledge in the future. And it's this representation of future Indigenous identity, of Aboriginal characters that are shaped by their traditions and their connectedness with their country and each other, as, as much as they're shaped by their space-age personal context, that upsets a Western colonial understanding of Aboriginal culture as being frozen at some point in the distant past, as Quay Mulliner puts it. So Coleman does, in The Old Lie, what she does in all of her speculative fiction. She takes advantage of the speculative fiction form, which she says is always about writing in a constructed world. In fact, Coleman reckons the superpower of all genres and subgenres of speculative fiction, be they fantasy, science fiction, or horror forms, is that their world itself can be didactic. Sci-fi and space opera invite deliberate world building. And these worlds can therefore make the point that Aboriginal people are, as Coleman believes, the world's greatest survivors. By imagining them as the living, breathing descendants of one of the world's oldest, continuous living cultures on a future Earth. So then, who are these Aboriginal characters in the old lie? And how does their focalization of Coleman's novel allow us to connect with their shared and unique identities as survivors in Earth's future? Well, first of all, any character that focalizes a story filters it through their consciousness. So all that readers see, hear, or know at a given time is what their focalizing character sees, hears, or knows. Essentially, a focalized story is one told through a specific character's perspective, and the old lie is focalized through five perspectives, belonging to Federation soldier Shane Daniels, Federation fighter pilot Romani Zetz, callsign Romeo, space station refugee Jimmy, inmate turned test subject William, and finally Walker, the survivor of a bomb dropped on Central Australia. Each of these focalizers, as Coleman describes them, are just average people. You know, they're, they're not massively heroic captains or chosen ones, but they're strong Aboriginal people that experience dislocation, nuclear weapons testing, and the brutal treatment of refugees, war veterans, and families torn apart by the stolen generations, all from an insider's point of view. So... Because readers encounter the old lie filtered through the points of view of Coleman's characters, 
we interrupt what Kwe Malina calls the long violence of the colonial project. A project that requires a lack of empathy for those who are being dispossessed in order to be carried out. But the old lie builds empathy. Because the voices we encounter within it belong to the people being dispossessed, and we as readers live vicariously through them. Coleman's vocalizers are a complex and diverse set of people, too, who share a connection with their Aboriginal culture and their country, but who live through unique experiences and are connected with diverse communities and ancestral lands. Then we discover, by the end of Coleman's novel, that these characters' stories are all, in fact, interwoven with each other. The first story in The Old Lie is Shane Daniels. First a corporal, then a sergeant, then a lieutenant, then Captain Shane Daniels of the Federation Infantry. But at all times, Shane is the Aboriginal woman with the main military power in Coleman's novel. A power she shares with her close friend and almost sister, Romeo, a lieutenant and then a wing commander in the Federation Star Force. Shane and Romeo cross paths very unexpectedly, only a short time into Coleman's novel, in a skirmish to defend a space station above Earth. In fact, Shane and Romeo are both veterans fighting the same space war to save the Earth, except Shane is fighting on the ground and Romeo's in space. But no matter where they fight, it's carnage. On one off-world battlefield, for instance, Shane describes corpses floating, drifting, forming logjams of bodies, leaking themselves bloodless, staining the once fertile plains with their life, their loss. It's... it's brutal. And Romeo, in a space battle, watches a human face float past. Blood streaming from his eyes, turning to red vapour, then into nothing in the vacuum around her ship. This is the war against violent and aggressive invasion that Shane and Romeo fight, as Shane says, for the country, for the planet, for ancestral land that had been stolen once and never would be again. Except, it's also a war that Shane and Romeo fight for the Federation until the Federation decides it doesn't want them, as citizens of provisional members of the Federation, like Earth, to return to their planet. The Federation is turning Earth into a luxury retirement estate for returned soldiers from the full member planets only. And then, the Federation decides to take Shane's children while she's fighting for the Federation off-world and foster them out to families on separate planets because they were found to be without a mother, and it's a clear case of neglect to the Federation's Human Services Department. So, we, as we experience Shane and Romeo fighting their blood-soaked war for the Federation through their own eyes, only to lose their country and their families as a result, and receive the same treatment as Australia's returned Aboriginal soldiers in the past, we, we can't help but care because the characters do. And their stories are just the beginning. Jimmy is a child on the run from Federation police who arrested him after his adopted parents kicked him out and forced him into homelessness on the street of their planet. 
as he moves constantly around space stations in Coleman's novel, trying to get back to his home on Earth by secreting or bartering his way onto spaceship cargo holds, Jimmy crosses paths with other wanderers and refugees, fleeing other war-torn planets. On space station concourses, Jimmy watches them stagger from their ships, overloaded hulks, bulk carriers and hollow trucks, moving like sentient whining cargo rather than passengers, who are dirty, lost and hungry, crying and helpless and are all doing what Jimmy's doing, trying to get away from the planets they came from and to somewhere safe. But as a refugee himself, Jimmy also experiences the brutality of the space station police, with their stun guns and their far more fatal tactics for forcing refugees back onto the ships they'd been brought on. And Jimmy's also required to apply for refugee status with the Human Services Department, an application that forces him to fill out forms written in dense legalese, the small print almost too tiny for him to read, the blocks of text intimidatingly massive, the sentences too long, as he realises too late, and the whole thing intended to make it harder than necessary to apply for entry to Earth. But after Jimmy eventually makes it to the main Earth orbit space station, having survived starvation, stunning, beating, being squeezed into impossibly small spaces for unthinkable amounts of time, witnessing people die in front of him, and having taken a little human girl called Itta under his wing, then his narrative interweaves with Shane's. Through a human services bureaucrat, Shane discovers that Jimmy and Itta, in fact, are her children. But neither Jimmy nor Itta remembers Shane or each other because they were separated by the Federation's war and their foster care system far too early for any concrete memories of their family to have stuck. And, and then... Yeah, right, right when Shane knows where Jimmy and Itta are, having fought their way together across space to Earth, they're taken to the New Manor Station Detention Center, and Shane loses them. Again. Her children, who have been at the mercy of eerily familiar refugee policy, and to enable readers of the old lie to vicariously live life as a space refugee are gone. And we feel that loss, because we know it from Shane's and Jimmy's points of view. Yet, while all this is happening in space, Shane and Romeo are losing family back on Earth. William, who we find out is Shane's husband, is in prison after trying to stop the Federation police from taking his children. William describes how he had defended himself when the police laid hands on him, as they came for Jimmy and Itta, but that there were five police, all armed versus him, and that they broke him, bruised his face, kicked in his teeth again and again, and again, it's brutal. But then, all of a sudden, William is not in prison, but is dying in some terrestrial research facility run by members of the Brain Bug Alliance, a collaboration of multiple species, who care only for science, as William says. But that science, he discovers, is experimentation. And William is not the only human who's dying or being experimented on. He doesn't even know what's killing him or the other people from Earth, and neither do the brain bugs. But in order to save William, 
They replace every cell of his skin, his whole body maybe, with nanomachines. Machines that take William away at an atomic level and replace him so well that even he can barely tell. But he can. William's alive, but he knows he's not William anymore. And he's told that he will never see any other humans outside of the facility again. Not his family, not his community. And so having fought and fought to survive, but left feeling like there's no other option, he administers a fatal injection so that his soul, he says, what was left of it, would escape his body and return to his country. There he would join his old people. His wife and kids would be there one day too. William knows through everything, through imprisonment and experiments and unthinkable sickness, that his strength comes from his family, his culture, and his country. William's story, then, is similar to Walker's, Romeo's brother, Coleman's final focalizer, who is also dying from an invisible poison, but in the desert on Earth. Walker does eventually find out what's killing him, though. It's viral radiation from a particle bomb dropped on Alice Springs by the Federation, allegedly to test what it would do to people as a weapon, but tested far enough from the prying eyes of the law, and only on land housing the Federation's provisional members. The fallout from this particle bomb, Walker learns, has contaminated every living thing around the drop site at a subatomic level. And Walker, who was within contamination range when the bomb hit, is now physically decaying. And he, like William, fights hard to survive. But he knows he doesn't have long. So, he says, if I am going to finish, I want to go home. I want to finish up on country with my old people. Because Walker's connection to his family, culture, and country is what sustains him in life, and what he wishes to return to in death. Through Walker's eyes, then, Coleman's readers live the horrific effects of a foreign body's nuclear weapons testing on Aboriginal people, something drawn straight from Australia's history, from the British nuclear tests at Maralinga in the 50s and 60s, that caught the Indigenous communities in and around the test sites in real-life radioactive fallout. And again, because Walker focalises his own gruelling journey across the desert back to his ancestral land, we go on that journey with him, and we care. We care about all of Coleman's focalizers, who allow us to connect with their experiences of horrors from history, and now. But we also, reading their five interwoven stories, appreciate not just what they share, but what makes them diverse and unique. There's not one universal Aboriginal perspective. You know, there never has been, there's not now, and there's certainly not in the old lie. So as we read about Coleman's Aboriginal characters, we can appreciate what distinguishes each of their points of view, as well as what draws them together, be that family, friendship, or the fallacy of fighting for the Federation when all it seems to bring is suffering. So on that note, the last part of our journey through the old lie will take us back to the title, considering where that title came from and how Coleman uses this element of intertextuality 
to help us engage with the concept of country. The Old Light takes its title from the second last line of a poem by the famous World War I soldier poet Wilfred Owen. His poem, called Dolce et Decorum Est, takes its own title from an old Latin phrase, Dolce et Decorum Est Pro Patria Mori, in full, which means it is sweet and proper to die for one's country. Owen calls this proclamation the old lie in his poem as he describes a gas attack on World War I soldiers with bleak, harrowing frankness to disrupt the myth of battle in the First World War as being something noble or glorious. To Owen, glory itself is a lie because war is horrific. But Coleman also bookends her novel with quotes from Owen's poem, using it as more than just a source for a title. So clearly, Coleman wants us to consider this intertext, this piece of writing that she draws into dialogue with her own story of futuristic space age invasion and indigenous strength. As Coleman has said before, actually, she references her intertexts and quotes the bits of imagery that exemplify some of what she's trying to say in other pieces of writing so that people can trace back her sources and unpack further the concepts she writes about. So I think to end our journey through the old lie, that's what we should do. Unpack further the concept of country, specifically as it appears in Owen's reference to the old Latin phrase and in Aboriginal culture. I don't think that's just a coincidence. The word country, as it is, has different meanings in standard and Aboriginal English. In an Aboriginal context, it's frequently written with an uppercase C, which is difficult to communicate here, but is clearly communicated in Coleman's novel, which is filled with the uppercase form of country. All her focalizers talk about it and understand it as being a part of themselves. And this much broader usage of the word country suggests its significance as the main spiritual basis of Aboriginal cultural heritage. Something that is more than a landscape, that's a living thing and a source of strength and being for all of Coleman's Aboriginal characters. So for these characters to die for their country, as William and Walker suggest, among other things, that they do, or for Coleman's characters to even risk death in the protection of their country if we read it with an uppercase C, is less about dying for the imagined glory of an abstract nation-state and more about custodianship of the land. Aboriginal people were the first occupants of Australia and their custodial relationship with this country, with their country, speaks of caring for, protecting, and belonging to the land. And this sort of relationship is what Shane, Romeo, William, and Walker know in Coleman's novel. Their country is a part of them, of their reason to survive. In that way, perhaps it is sweet and proper. But Owen, and the old Latin phrase, doesn't refer to this form of country. It speaks of a country, one's country, which takes us back to the abstract nation-state reading of the word. In the old lie, these nation-states are the conglomeration and the federation. For Coleman's Aboriginal characters, then, who fight against the conglomeration for the federation, 
and then end up fighting a horrific war against the Federation as well. The idea of dying nobly for either nation-state is a lie. As it was for Coleman's grandfather, who fought for Australia in World War II and received no land, nor form of identification on his grave when he died. Glory was a lie for Aboriginal soldiers too, who fought for the Commonwealth, and then were turned away from their home when they came back. And the lies continue. Colonisation wasn't peaceful. Refugees and Aboriginal people are mistreated by the law, and the stolen generations caused immeasurable damage to the families they tore apart, and the British did test nuclear weapons on Aboriginal land without a thought for the safety of the Aboriginal people living there. But to forget these elements of our past, or to suppress them in our present, well, that might be the oldest lie of all. <laughs> 